Right, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us for this week's Tea and Tech session, uh, our weekly discussion panel looking at what's happening in the tech law world. I'm David Chaplin, editor of Computers of Law, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Shabana Ayer, a uh, practicing barrister in uh, tech law at Swan Chambers, Minesh Tanner, a solicitor in the dispute resolution team at Simmons & Simmons, and Chris Holder, a partner at Bristow's and until recently co-chair of the IBA Technology Committee. Thanks to you all for joining us. Uh, just a reminder that while we are talking, uh, the chat panel is open, so please do chip in with any comments uh, and insights you might have on what we are discussing. Before we get on to the main event, uh, just a quick catch up on some of the other news uh, and highlights we've got covered and coming up on SCL in the next few weeks. Our next event, schedule event, is, is after Easter, actually. It's uh, way away, but um, uh, promises to be interesting. It's a joint event uh, with the British Computer Society um, on the 15th of April, and it is going to be discussing the prop proposition that this house would prefer to be governed by algorithm direct rather than by politicians who are not ICT professionals and who have never coded software to deliver a, functional, a functionally useful algorithm for any customer or user. And I believe Shabana is going to be seconding one of the arguments. I can't remember which one at the moment. But, um, uh, so it's bound to be intriguing. And that's a date for your diary, 15th of April. Uh, it's also something we may touch on later on today, that issues around there. Um, also, nuance.scl.org this week, uh, we've published a case report on the CGEU's decision about embedding frames and copyright. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, a German portal service embedded thumbnails of images and other content uh, hosted on a site of participating institutions, and the copyright holders weren't happy, uh, authors and things like that, and uh, the creators, um, and they said that they'd need permission to embed on their third-party site, and the CGEU uh, has agreed with them. Uh, so the report on that on the website, and also we published a report on the European Data Protection Board's 46th plenary session, um, which obviously covered a lot of ground, including our own adequacy decision with the EU, and uh, an opinion on the proposed Data Governance Act that seeks to make data sharing through trusted intermediaries easier. Uh, I'm sure this is one you'll hear more of in the next year or two as it trundles through, and we'll see what the effect is it's going to have on UK law, if any. Uh, of course, data sharing and governance is inextricably linked with the regulation of AI, and that brings us to our first talking point today. Uh, Minesh, you spotted a new report out this week uh, that provided more evidence that the regulation of AI is still causing a bit of confusion. Uh, what did that report say, and uh, why do we think it's still causing confusion? Thanks, David. Yeah, there was a paper from KPMG this week called Thriving in an AI World, um, which included research of industry leaders about the state of AI. And there were some illuminating findings, I think, about the rate of adoption of AI, which I think raised questions about the risks that AI causes and, and indeed other emerging tech and the regulation, or probably more accurately, lack of regulation um, around those um, pieces of emerging tech and AI in particular. And lots of different questions were asked about AI and adoption, but I think the one that really struck me um, is that across all sectors, so this is tech, financial services, healthcare, retail, et cetera, just under half of those surveyed said AI adoption is moving too fast. And interestingly, when you break that down further, 
of those surveyed who had high AI knowledge, so those who say they know a lot about the tech, just over half of them said that AI is moving too fast. So you've got people generally saying that AI is moving too fast, but also I think, interestingly, those who are close to AI saying it's moving too fast. And I think that struck me, and I thought, well, what does that mean about AI and particularly regulation? I think we're all aware that the pandemic has forced greater adoption of tech, accelerated that adoption, including AI, and I think AI was becoming more prominent anyway. And I think we've really admired that. It seems to be a silver lining from the pandemic that um, we've all adopted and embraced new technology. And I could say, working from a law firm, which is you know, usually quite a conservative um, type of body, um, that we've changed as well, and we're using and adopting new tech, which is great in, in some ways. But then you've got to stop and think, maybe there are some harmful aspects to how quick this adoption has happened. And I think one of the issues it's raised is that we just don't have the regulation there. That's not catching up with the level of tech adoption. And that's not just AI. I think it's the same for other emerging technologies like blockchain and cryptocurrency. And stats like this, I think, really emphasize that we do desperately need regulation around this emerging tech. And you, I, I, I remember you mentioning earlier when, this week when we were talking about this, that uh, there's algorithm, there's a website algorithm watch out there. Um, and, it, and it's got a staggering number of, uh, of uh, frameworks that is listed on there. What, what, what does the algorithm watch website do? Yeah, so Algorithm Watch um, monitors uh, what frame, legal frameworks and guidelines there are out there. Um, and interestingly, what's, obviously we've got a gap, I think, where there's no regulation, but what's quickly filling that, particularly in the AI space, is a consensus around AI ethics. Um, an algorithm watch has identified 167 legal or frameworks um, that contain principles relating to uh, AI and algorithms. So even though we don't have regulation, there is still something there. There is guidance. There is encouragement uh, about using AI in an ethical way. Um, but I think I've got sort of two issues, I think, and, and I hope this doesn't sound too controversial, but I question the effectiveness of those frameworks for, for two reasons. The first is who's enforcing them? Um, I mean, it could be that we leave it to, to the free market and there are commercial incentives for organizations to make sure they're operating um, in an AI ethically way. But I think we're not quite there yet. Um, and I don't think there are any regulatory bodies that are going to necessarily enforce AI ethics. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, how do you practically apply the principles that are contained in those frameworks? So I think there's a growing consensus around the types of um, things that organizations need to do um, in order to be ethically compliant in the way they use AI. So for example, the AI needs to be transparent, it needs to be fair and free of bias, and there needs to be good governance. But what does that actually mean in practice? And we regularly get questions from clients about what it means to explain their use of AI. What do they need to explain? How do they need to explain it? And I think, unfortunately, there isn't yet that tangible guidance in terms of how to apply those principles. So even though we don't have regulation and we do have that sort of guidance, I still think it's not yet good enough to replace regulation. So... Uh, Chris, Shabana, have you, have you got any views on that? Is, is AI regulation, I mean, it, there is a gap. I mean, that, that's what they describe it in the report, is a, an AI regulation gap, isn't there? There is a gap there. 
does it what are your clients uh, saying when they say what how do we how do we cope with this how do we how do we fulfill the obligations that we think or the expectations let's say that uh, these frameworks putting uh, putting out there when we don't know which ones to follow is, is that an issue or, or I mean well, you've got a long history in this oh sorry go on Jamal well, I mean, I'm just thinking about it. I mean, the report doesn't seem to be that surprising, considering that, um, you know, previous studies um, with regard to PwC predicted a kind of AI to contribute to around 15.7 trillion GDP, GDP within the by 2030. Um, but I think it all centers on this issue of trust and about, as we say, what kind of frameworks can we put into place? Um, we know it's not just biased and discrimination. And uh, recently, of course, there's been that paper, um, a recent paper done by Sandra Vacher and a team at um, the Oxford Internet Institute on um on actually bias preservation in machine learning. And it's really counterparts on kind of the three areas of uh, bias um, and discrimination, because you're looking at not just the data samples that are used to train and test the algorithm systems that often um, be insufficiently represented of the population from which they are actually drawing their inferences. And that creates a real pos uh, possibility of bias, but also the other two factors, which is like, um, you know, which AI technologies gain their insights from existing structures in our society uh, that analyze and analyze these data-driven technologies and reproduce and reinforce or amplify those patterns of discrimination and inequality. And of course, um, the other area where we have um, many features and metrics and analytics and structures um, which are chosen by the designers. And her paper, um, which is entitled, and it's just been released, but you'll find it free on the SSRN um, website. It's entitled Bias Preservation in Machine Learning and Legality of Fairness Metrics under e EU Non-Discrimination Law. And I think what I like about it is the fact that she does try to give, they do try to give a kind of a checklist um, in distinguishing between um, choosing bias-preserving uh, metrics where it could be justifiable in certain circumstances and bias-transforming metrics to try and cater for those kind of uh, situations. But I might be getting a bit technical here on that. So essentially, that's good bias and bad bias, isn't it? Um, so in, a, in a way, but, you know, there might be a situation where... Um, you know, bias preservation in society would not really make that much a difference to the algorithm yeah. basis. That's a good checklist what they provided, um, which which helps a little bit with that part of the bias discrimination side of things. But as we say, that's not the only um, cause for concern because, of course, you've got other forms of challenges like the denial of individual autonomy and recourse to rights. Um, the way that citizens might be subjected to certain decisions and predictions, uh, but also, you know, the non-transparent and unexplainable or unjustifiable outcomes and the invasion of privacy. And of course, um, we could have, you know, the isolation and disintegration of social connection. I think we've seen that um, um, a lot of um, delegates may have seen that um, uh, uh, um, series on Netflix on the social dilemma um, and of course you know you've got other things like unreliable and unsafe poor quality outcomes that can be 
uh, committed as well. So all this runs together, I think. And if we look at a couple of recent um, latest, um, a couple of articles that have been put by the Centre of uh, Data Ethics and Innovation, um, they've looked into, you know, recently on the issue of, and they did a quick research or paper on uh, reflecting on the use of AI and data-driven technology in the pandemic. And they found that one of the key issues that links between trust in governance and the support for the use of data-driven technology um, was about um, the amount of uh, the kind of variables and concerns that are being put there. So it was, you know, just having trust in governance of technology is the single biggest, was one of the single biggest uh, predictors of whether someone believes in that digital technology and whether that will be sustainable. So I think that makes a big difference about um, trust in AI. And I think this is why we're seeing a recent surgence, I think, you know, where you've got the Council of Europe looking at regulations into AI. And of course, you've got the European Commission coming up with trustworthy AI. And of course, um, you know, we can talk about later on about, you know, different other um, organisations that are coming together to try and deal with this. So, Chris, you've been you've been in this area for a long time. Is it it is a mess, and it, it remains a mess in a way, doesn't it? Because I mean, it's, the, the, the issues that um, that Shabana just issued uh, mentioned are huge and wide ranging, aren't they? Um, so, how it's, do we narrow this? They're, down? <laughs> they're huge and they're wide ranging, and there's nothing new that's come out in this report. In fact, it goes if we go back to 2014, 2013, and what the European Parliament was doing, and what some of the um, UK government spin-offs, um, the Robotic uh, Association, um, the, the, what they call the RAS, Special Interest Group, the Robotic Autonomous Systems Special Interest Groups that work with the UK government, and then SPARC and the European Robotics Forum. Um, none of this stuff is new. It's been spoken about for the last seven, eight years. You know, one of the biggest issues, yeah, absolutely, is about the public's trust in the use of AI and robotics. That's not new. That was identified a very long time ago. Um, there is still a massive problem around the definition of what is AI. Uh, I listen to a lot of commentators, including people within the UK government, and they still don't understand what artificial intelligence is. And they get confused between big data and Excel spreadsheets on steroids and machines that can actually scan the information around them and make a decision based on the data that is being inputted into their systems. These are radically different things. You know, at one end, you've got AI, which is no different, an AI solution, which is no different to normal hardware and software. And at the other end, you've got autonomous machines, whether they're hardware specific or software specific or a combination of the two heart these machines making a decision to do something that changes everything that bit changes everything that machine learning bit changes everything and that is a bit that worries me more than big data and analyzing loads of things really quickly and spewing out an output that a human being then interprets so there is a gap. There's always been a gap between technology and regulation. Um, there always, traditionally, we could go back into the 60s, 50s, 60s, computing law, there was always a gap between technology and how it was, how it was advancing and what the law said. Data protection, the old Data Protection Act, 1998, um, didn't necessarily cater for uh, cloud, for example. But that, all, of that, all of that has changed. So there is a huge gap 
in regulation. But what I would say is that there is also a huge gap in everyone's understanding of what technology is being used at the moment and whether that is AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning type. Um, are there sufficient laws at the moment to cater for the way technology is being used? And I would argue there is. Will there be a need for specific laws to come into place as true AI and machine learning practices are, are engaged in various sectors? And the answer is yes. So which ones? Now, what? Yeah. unlike the Europeans, bless them all, love them all, um, the European Commission has this fixation with there should be a robot law, a robotics law, an AI law. I think that one that one size fits all is just is, is just a, a mistake. I don't think it, it will happen like that. I think what you're going to get is various sectors regulating themselves or looking for regulation on sector specific solutions. So, what happens in med tech? You're going to have to get specific learn to a certain extent. There are the medical devices directive looking at the way software is now seen as a medical device, software platforms, medical devices, how devices take on board data and then and then use that data to perhaps provide some sort of clinical device, a medical device. That is one sector. That's radically different to the fintech sector, which is radically different to the um, defence and arms sector, for example. Well, so, we've, got, we've got a sort of somebody's asked the question, but it gives, gives us an example of that. Um, somebody's asked the question: Would it be a good idea? And here's a specific uh, element of banning AI. Would it be a good uh, idea to ban the use of AI and facial recognition? There's then now whether you think it's a good idea or not. I mean, like those those views. That's an example of one specific area where it needs maybe needs regulation you can attack it and so maybe are you're suggesting that's the way it should that yeah, that's the way and, you it. yeah and the answer to that question is it depends a great legal answer everyone would immediately agree great legal answer but if you're if you're using technology that isn't isn't particularly good in order to say right facial recognition software and the way that output is is interpreted it means that we can go and arrest someone because of the way they look and the profile that we've put in and because of the situation of where they are geographically you know that type of approach clearly i what well, i would suggest is, is is a false approach it's a bad approach you're going to get bad results if you're using technology to assist people take on board a huge amount of information and then human beings interpret that, then that might be a good approach. If you are all of a sudden going to completely outsource um, the provision of crime detection to CCTV cameras all linked to the Internet of Things and a big algorithm, discuss. Yeah. That's that's the real that's the real problem, that bit. I think that has led to um, what Chris was talking about, sector-specific regulation of AI. So we know that facial recognition is banned in law enforcement in certain states and cities in the US. Um, and we know that the EU was considering, at one point, a full blanket ban on facial recognition. That was in the first iteration of the white paper last year, the leaked version of the white paper. The subsequent version of the white paper didn't refer to a blanket ban. But we do think that the AI regulation coming into force probably this year will say something about um, facial recognition and, and probably deem it a high-risk use of AI such that it is subject to more stringent regulation. Um, it doesn't work, right? It doesn't. Well, what's happened to date is 
most of it has been used incorrectly in order to and it's this fixation with technology technology will give me the answer it will make us all better well do you know what not necessarily because it depends how you use it it's still a machine and at the moment we are in charge of that we are in charge of the way it's where it's where the cameras are put we are in charge of the software that is put within them we are in charge of what they look like what they collect and the interpretation of that information we are in charge human beings are still in charge of that at the moment and yeah. the fact that a machine or a computer at the moment pings something up doesn't necessarily mean that that person is guilty of anything i, th- I think that at, at one level so you know bad 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 outputs or bad interpretations of existing technology doesn't mean the technology is wrong. I see that. I'd say two things. used wrong. I'd say two things in response, Chris, and one of them might be a bit controversial. Um, Go for it. But the first is there is a tendency to expect and to want AI to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, we think there's something wrong with it. And I think that's an, an odd position to take when, as humans, we are far from perfect. I mean, we have unconscious bias you know, all throughout society. So why are we expecting computers to be 100% accurate when we're not as humans? So that's the first thing I would say. And, and people are very quick to criticise when um, a, a piece of AI makes a mistake. I think it was Waymo, didn't they? They released their data this week for, you know, thousands of hours of autonomous vehicle testing. And they showed that it was having fewer accidents than would have been the case if there was a human driver. Um, but we still are very critical and wary of, of autonomous vehicles, and maybe rightly so. The second thing I would say is, and this is in law enforcement, and, and again, I say it's a slightly controversial, but as someone who's a member of the Bain community, I actually would prefer computers making decisions about me than humans in law enforcement. And I know that might sound controversial, but actually I think we're at the, the state now where the technology is good enough um, that we can rely on it. I say that's controversial because I'm sure people won't agree with that uniformly, but I just wanted to put that out there. Shivana, have you got any views on that? Oh, no. I mean, I think it's this kind of balance between a visionary sort of way forward. And I do believe that AI is actually making a greater impact, but it's on a specific kind of areas. So and because we do, as Chris was saying, we do have the full control of it at the moment. Okay, we've got the machine learning aspect of it, but we're still in what we call the narrow, weak AI kind of area. And I think it's when we shift more into the normal AI and the super AI when when that comes, uh, it's where we have the concerns. But um, even here, I think it's about how do we actually um, look at this, you know, it's nice to have a kind of visionary area and they say, right, let's go ahead with it. But I think everybody has to have a 360 kind of viewpoint on all of this and take into consideration what are the greater impacts. And I'll say that, you know, we need to have AI. It's making significant impact for the benefit of society. I mean, you've seen things like, you know, case cruncher that's uh, supposed to be 84% accurate. Uh, and whereas London lawyers at the same time were doing those cases under the P- PPE kind of predictions, um, they only got 67% per, uh, correct. So in terms of, yeah, human um, knowledge in human area, in terms of certain parts of it, but it really depends on how far away you use that AI and how you know specific it is because the more specific and detailed it is and you've got those clear repetitions i think that's where ai can be used because of the programming that's been put into it and that's why you know we are going to have this uh, development and increase in ai use throughout society 
Ash, do you mind if we, uh, Siobhan, if we move on to your the, the bit about the digital reporting, yes. digital regulation <laughs> cooperation forum? Um, we were going to talk about something else, but because this conversation has been really, really fascinating, I think it fits in very well because it's about about all the the different bodies that need to regulate um, the digital economy and and AI, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, as you know, we've been having this. Um, you know, I wouldn't say just disruption, but kind of an accelerated pro, uh, progress into the digital uh, digital world of things because of um, because of the COVID. We've had, you, you know, very well that the main it's 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 affected not just the main industries of finance and retail where everything is done online, but also in the creative sector as well. We've had we've shifted more to audio books, video content, gaming, and streaming of movies, etc. And um, and I just want to add two things on the tangent side of things you know viewers might know that the game uh the last of us two um has received a record-breaking 13 nominations for the BAFTA gaming awards and once this lockdown is over I think you might like to go and visit um an AI robot uh, robots um uh, art gallery that's going to be put into London the London Design Museum I think it's Adia, Ada's kind of exhibition. So, uh, but coming back to the point on the digital regulation co uh, cooperation forum, this is a consortium of the um, Competition Market Authority, the Information Commissioner's Office, uh, and Ofcom, which is the Office of Communication, and in and they. Uh, set up in July last year, but they put their first report out this year. And now the FCA, was, which was which was an observer, will be also joining them. Uh, but they also have the other authorities. So they usually work with the other authorities like the um, ASA, the Ad uh, Advertising Standards Authority, the Prudential Regulation Authority, the Payments uh, System Regulator, the Intellectual Property Office, the Gaming Commission, and any other kind of appropriate authorities. But this consortium is really put together and they put out their working paper. Uh, uh, they established their first annual plan of work, which um, according to the Information Commissioner's Office, marks a step change in coordination and regulation across the digital and online services. And the aim is to create more coherent and coordinated and clear regulatory approach for both internet users and companies. Um, so the DRCF, will coordinate with um, with their with the regulatory approaches and they're concentrating on three priority areas. The first one is on responding strategically to industry and technical development. So this is to establish that kind of joint strategic um, projects where their collaboration uh, will help to provide clarity for businesses and digital service users. Um, in that area. Then there is the joint up regulatory approaches uh, to develop approaches for delivering uh, a coherent regulatory outcome. So I think this will help in things, for example, where you've got differences uh, between, you know, where you've got two, both the regulators having an interest in a certain issue, like what will come through, you know, for the Google um, Third-party cookies, wasn't it? Third-party yeah. cookies. They're, yeah. they're, they're calling it the Google sand, privacy sandbox, aren't they? And, and they're, in, they're, in, they're already investigating that. And, and as you well, can see, um, yeah, the Competition Markets Authority did start investigating that in January, and now what they decide to do is, of course, they're looking into all that in that process. But um, 
I think what this provides is that now the ICO can actually work along with um, the Competition uh, Authority and also Ofcom and FCA to actually, you know, work together to bring a kind of more collaborative framework um, for these areas. So they're trying to create kind of uh, a design frameworks and also they're just looking at um, algorithmic processing um, and of course these digital advertising technologies as well that's coming into in, into the picture as well so yes they published their first report <laughs> out. I was gonna I was gonna just emphasize though that they've it's a sort of a voluntary body isn't it and it's that it has no statutory authority or anything like that does it no, it doesn't. But I suppose that's left to each of their regulatory authorities to actually still use their powers. So the ICO has their powers, the Competition Commission has its powers. But I think this collaboration will kind of, one, help industries because at least they'll know they're working, to, you know, they've got this kind of uh, consortium body. So, you know, very well, if you're working in that sandbox that, yeah, you don't have to go independently to the ICO and independently to the competition commissioner in that way. So you've got that collaboration there. But yeah, each of them got their own teeth <laughs> on their own stuff. They haven't got the kind of joint together. <laughs> but it's I was just going to say, it's, it's fascinating to see regulators coming together and, and work together in, in this area. Um, and I think it comes back to an important point that Chris made earlier, which is that these are all te technically complicated areas that, that regulators have got to get their heads around. They've got to understand what AI is and you know how to regulate it. And they've got to understand what blockchain and cryptocurrency and, and other emerging techs are. So it's really interesting to see them coming together. And I think that can probably improve their overall understanding of these technologies and probably then lead to more effective regulation in their respective areas. But I just I, I just find it very fascinating, particularly from a lawyer's perspective, to see regulators coming and working together. Chris, have you got any thoughts? Will it, will it improve our regulation of the digital economy by joint working? Um, it's always good to talk to each other, especially yeah. if you've got common interests. And it's always good to see government um, looking at itself and looking across itself to see where similar themes are being discussed so let's hope so um but i would say i wouldn't hold my breath yeah and yeah and it might just be a slight example of a bit more another 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 report that doesn't really take us anywhere that's that's always the problem I mean, it's good to talk i agree but um a bit like all the ai frameworks we've got out there that you know, agreed <laughs> yeah, that, that might not take us anywhere. Talking of government, um, I'm looking at the time as well. We've gone about half an hour already, but we'll stay on just for a bit longer. Um, talking of government, um, as you mentioned there, Chris, uh, maybe Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary, isn't quite uh, across the board uh, with, with the regulators because he made some comments earlier this week about the direction of data protection uh, post-Brexit. Um, and he said, actually, in an interview, I think it was in the Financial Times, and he spoke to some other journalists as well. Um, in our rulemaking, we can take a slightly less European approach as set out in the GDPR by focusing more on the outcomes that we want to have and less on the burdens of the rules imposed on individual businesses. Now, he may or may not be right, but was this a wise thing to do while we're still waiting for confirmation that we've got an adequacy decision? Um, any views on that, Chris? <laughs> um, I, yeah. I, I don't think what he has said will influence, well, hopefully it won't influence the adequacy decision. I and mean, it would, in my mind, be complete madness if there was any other decision other than 
data flow should continue as they always have because it just would not make any sense. That really would, I think, put the EU back in that um, that spot that it is trying to get out of from the vaccine perspective. And it would really be seen as a piece of ill will, I think, more than anything else. Um, I would be very interested to know whether what Mr Dowden is talking about applies specifically to the use of NHS data. Um, because I can I can see one area where we have a, 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 an extraordinary asset, um, the asset being patient data from um, cradle to grave in the in the in the UK that's been around for 50, 60, 70 odd years. Um, the use of that data and how how it could uh, increase our understanding of a whole range of medical issues could be used for the benefit of the UK population and could be of value to a whole range of industries is something that I have no doubt the government is looking to exploit. So it may be, maybe it's that bit amongst others. But I would, yes, I think a divergent, we could probably only use our data for the way that the UK government is thinking about using NHS data if we move away from what is currently practiced in Europe, would be my view. Manesh, Shabana, have you got any views on that? That uh, it might be that specific data that uh, he's thinking about, which I agree is uh, important. Um, would it, would, would, could we diverge without actually breaching what we need to maintain? Well, I think we're going to still have to keep with some for, um, with the GDPR, and even if it's the UK GDPR, it's going to still uh, have the same kind of level. Um, so I'm not sure about, about diverging from that. I think it's probably more about trying to show that UK is a good um, economy to come and you know work on AI, <laughs> because we I think out of the frameworks that uh, Minesh was mentioning previously, I think most of those frameworks are actually UK based as well, from in terms of the European side of things. So we'll see how that goes. But <laughs> yeah. Manesh, have you got any thoughts on that? Well, I think I'll probably carry on in the same slightly cynical vein that, that Chris started on, which is that I wouldn't be surprised if if that is that you know the health data is part of um, the motivation behind this. But I think it's there's a broader macro question, isn't there, about what is our regulatory level going to be in a post Brexit world? Are we going to try, particularly with new tech, are we going to try and and, and foster innovation and attract lots of new tech by actually offering very little uh, by way of regulation and, and lowering those standards, almost like a race to the bottom type scenario. And I think, uh, again, it might be slightly cynical, but I suspect we are probably going to do that because you know, how else can you attract uh, new tech, um, particularly in this day and age, other than to say we're going to offer a more attractive regulatory framework than the EU? Look look what's happened in the US around autonomous yeah. vehicles. You know, various states, various cities bidding against various other cities to say you can use your cars google uber in my city to to learn how to navigate from a to b um and i, I think it's pretty well recognized in the in in the industry in the ai and robotics industry that over regulation is seen as something very detrimental to the growth of those industries um and therefore those jurisdictions which allow for mass data analysis on a autonomized basis um 
uh, for the the creation of med tech businesses is going to magically get more med tech. So very quickly then on that point, does the, is the GDPR too onerous for the development of such technologies? I mean, people have mentioned that it's, it's not a quick question, this, people have mentioned that it's sort of out of date and it's not keeping up to date with what is the, the, the requirements out there for these technology companies. Do you, very shortly, do you believe that's the correct, that's correct? And then maybe we could be justified on moving away slightly, as long as we keep David Sloat's go. <laughs> I mean, my, my own personal view is that certainly when it comes to people's personal information and, and sensitive information around medical history, it's right and proper that that should not be used um, by government without individuals know how, knowing what is going on. Uh, there, there are very, very good reasons why the GDPR is in place to protect consumers, to, to protect individuals. And I would personally, I would not want to see any of that eroded. That having been said, um, the ability to use the data sets that have been created in this country for the benefit of this country would be a valuable thing. Yeah, I, I share that, that view um, by Chris as well. I, I think we need to have that protection in place. I think the question is just how do you do that adequately and, and is GDPR fit for purpose? I mean, coming back to AI again, apologies to, to do so, but um, you know, there's a reference to GDPR to automated decision making. But that doesn't quite capture the nuances that Chris was talking about earlier, which is you know, the essence of machine learning and AI is computers acting autonomously and making decisions for themselves. And that's actually quite different from just automation, where computers are not making autonomous decisions. And I think that isn't quite captured in GDPR. So I think it's right that we have the protection, but I think it probably just needs to be tweaked to be more up, up to date. You know? And I, I agree with both of them as well in this, because... Even in blockchain, you know, you've got this, you need, you need to have some form of um, data protection, but it's very difficult. How do you know from the location of uh, the blocks, et cetera? And of course, the international nature of this uh, and the location and the data controller, it's very difficult to try and identify um, who the data controller is or what location or whether it actually fits into the GDPR at that uh, sector. And also the fact that how do you... Um, comply with the rights of the data subject, uh, particularly the right to be forgotten in these kind of technologies as well. It's very difficult to try and comply in those kind of sectors. So, <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, I think we'll have to call it to a close now. Everybody's call it tin tech, especially the time for a cup of tea. Everybody, everybody's tea will be going cold by now. Um, so I'd just like to thank you for that terrific discussion. Um, uh, and it didn't quite go to plan, but we missed one topic out. But I think we uh, that doesn't matter. It's informal. Um, if you wish to show your appreciation to the speakers, um, please do give. Uh, go to buymeacoffee.com slash SCL, uh, our regular appeal here, where you can uh, put some money in to, um, to help the SCL student initiatives. Uh, anything that goes there goes towards funding those sorts of things. Um, you may also want to check out our previous TN Tech sessions available on the dedicated page of the website. SCL, there it is, I should be coming up now, scl.org slash T and tech. Um, and we also now have a dedicated podcast site where this will be uh, uh, posted, uh, an edited version. Um, and that is podcast.scl.org, again, on your screen there. Uh, next week, uh, you'll be delighted to know that I'm having a week off and we have a guest editor instead, Neil Brown, who will chair a panel of three uh, for I hope will be another fascinating discussion. And so I hope you can join him again this time next week. And thanks all and have a good weekend. Thank you.